We are working our way verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And that's where we come today to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. And Lord, we just lay this before you. Speak to our hearts great and mighty things we know not of. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, last time, you remember, we ended with Jesus being the preeminent one. You know, we, we use that word, but in a different form. We'll often say, oh, this is the prominent person at our whatever, our convention, or the prominent person at our feast or whatever uh, at our party. So we do use that word prominent. But preeminent means this person will always be number one now and forever, wherever they're at. And this is the Father's will is that Jesus would be lifted up and always be lifted up now and forever throughout eternity because he came into the form of a man. He humbled himself, then became the servant of all men, and then he humbled himself even further to be our sacrifice, the death of the cross. And this is why Philippians 2 says, it's the Father's will that Jesus would be exalted and given the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first person of the Trinity looks to his son, the second person of the Trinity, and now and for all eternity, Jesus' name is to be worshiped and glorified above all. So we ended in verse 18 and 19 last time. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So I love that in Acts where Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. So today we, we come to Colossians 20 to 22, looking at Jesus is the one who's done all these great things to reconcile us to God the Father. In Colossians 1, verse 20 to 22, and by him, this is Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated, enemies in your mind, by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through the death to present you holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. Glorious scriptures here today. We first take a look at by him he has reconciled the world to himself. For he reconciles all things, heaven and earth, all things to himself. How? Because he brought peace through the blood of the cross. And so on the cross, Jesus did everything to reconcile us. Reconcile means you take two enemies and you have a mediator who brings those enemies from no longer being enemies, but best of friends. That would be the reconciler. So Jesus brought us sinners horrible, evil, enemies of God, alienated from God. And he, Jesus, through the blood of the cross, has 
reconciled us unto the Father, unto a perfection that we can even go to heaven. And that's justification and sanctification. He did them both. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 to 31, it says, but of him. Literally, it, it probably should be translated, it is somewhere, it says, by his doing alone. By Jesus doing alone, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, notice, for us. He did 100% of the work of what? Look at it. He's given us wisdom from God. He's given us righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That as it's written, let he, everyone, anyone, everyone who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So Jesus became for us on the cross in our place, the substitute. And when he died on the cross, he paid the price and gave us as a gift, not just salvation. Look at all this. He gave us wisdom. He gave us righteousness. He gave us sanctification. He gave us redemption, which is buying a person out of slavery or buying somebody who's been captured in war, in prison, buying their freedom. Christ has done all of that. We had no part of himself. He's accomplished all of that. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the same thing. Uh, verse 20 and 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. How? Completely. Now, the, that term, now may the God of peace himself, it's again emphatic. He did it by himself with nobody else's aid or help. It wasn't a 90, 10% thing. I did 90%, now you do 10%. Jesus did 100% of the work of entirely sanctifying us. That may your whole, notice, spirit, soul, and here's the tough one, body. <laughs> my spirit loves the Lord. It's my body, that lustful, sinful, greedy, angry thing that's underneath my spirit. But may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless, without fault, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, who calls you is faithful and what? Who also will do it. He did it. So he reconciled all things to himself. He brought our sinful flesh in this sinful world. And he brought us to the Father holy. Now, I grew up doing the four spiritual law tracks. You guys old enough to remember that? I think they're still around. But my favorite part in that, in that track is it where it showed God on one side of this chasm and man on the other side. And then it had a cross as the bridge. And that the cross brought God to man and man to God. Such a perfect picture. That's what we see right here. He did this work. He is the one who accomplished it. Reconciling people that, again, we had no understanding of how deep our sin was. We had no ability to, to repent and turn from our sin. We were dead in our spirit. But God the Father 
sent his only begotten son to bridge that gap. You guys, uh, you know, I used to live by Mexico for years, and a lot of great stories come out of there, but one was a guy in Mexico City who uh, a dad and a son had been estranged for years, and it just was never reconciling. And the dad now had so lost track of the son, he didn't know where he was. He assumed he was still in the Mexico City area. And so he puts an ad in the newspaper. Paco, I am so sorry. It's my fault. I'm the one who pushed you away. Please forgive me and come to return me. I'll be in the, the center, town center square at the Basilica on Saturday at 9 o'clock. Please meet me there. 800 Paco showed up. <laughs> How many people are estranged from one another and how the Father can bring reconciliation. Well, this is what Jesus did. All the sufficiency to reconcile, he accomplished. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 21. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry now of reconciliation. We're in the world telling men, God loves you. I thought God hated my guts. I'm such a sinner. No, he loves you. And come to God. How? Jesus Christ did all the work, and by believing in him, he'll make you as white as snow, pure. He'll heal you, give you the keys to eternal life. Then in verse 19, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, no longer even taking their shortcomings, their sins, and no longer putting it against them for condemnation. No longer is that happening. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we say we go out and witness. Really, we should say we are going out to reconcile. <laughs> We're going out as ambassadors to reconcile those, the lost world, to their king. Now, as we go on, you're going to say, why is he really honing his words to, in a certain way to make such points. Many of them are redundant statements. It's because they're fighting this thing called Gnosticism. So right away, people infiltrated the church. Paul said in the letter to Corinthians, he said, if, if you get a letter that says it's from me, and it doesn't sound like what I've been telling you, actually in Thessalonians he said that, but he says, it's not from me. I'm not going to change my doctrine. But these Gnostics were doing exactly that. And, and they believed that all things that are pure were in the spirit. And all material things were evil. So they believed Jesus could not have come in the flesh or he himself would be evil. So Jesus was an emanation. If you follow Jesus in the sand, his foot wouldn't have made a footprint. When he was on the cross... It was just an emanation on the cross. And 
It was an evil entity that created all matter. And so all that matters is your spirit. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Sin, get drunk. Uh, it doesn't matter because God doesn't care about your body because your body's evil anyway. Do whatever you want. It's only your spirit that God's cared about. And so we're, as we go through here, we're going to see all of these different things where he's contradicting the Gnostic doctrine. The same with First and Second and Third John. And next week, we're going to look at one verse. It says, if you continue. And so many people have looked at that verse as saying, this is me having to do my part to make sure that I'm saved. Horrible, horrible. I, I want to take a look at that and many other passages that, that look like um, God saying that you've got to keep your life up to date, uh, walk in obedience or you won't go to heaven. The Bible does not teach that, but it does say that we are not to fall into these Gnostic way of believing. Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Jesus really didn't die. Jesus was just a spirit. And it even turned into the worship of spirits, including angels, because everything of the spirit is, is godly. And so this material world is sinful. And so he, Paul is, is saying that God's reconciled all things to himself on earth and heaven. They believed God only reconciled things in the spiritual realm. But creation very much itself has been hurt by the sin of Adam. And God very much is going to renew this earth for a thousand years. In Romans 8, he tells us about the material things. They're not all wicked. They just need to be renewed. In verse 19 to 22, it says, For the earnest expectation, the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans, labors with birth pangs together until now. So not only is man wanting to get renewed in their new body, those who are born again, to have a body like Jesus, but all of creation groans, not living the way it really wants to live, and, but it's, it's subjected in futility, um, all things on this earth. But there's a day that all things are going to be reconciled to him, the entire universe in the millennial reign. We are going to see this. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So right now, we are, I believe, moments away from the rapture of the church. We're all believers going to be caught up together to be with the Lord. And for seven years, the focus is on bringing the nation of Israel to himself as a country. And God's focus is not on all the world, even though all the world can believe in God during that tribulation period, but it'll be very hard. They'll most likely die from believing in Jesus. Uh, you probably have the FBI raid your house and, and uh, stuff like that. Uh, but after that seven-year tribulation period, we, with Jesus, return to earth, and he sets up a thousand-year millennial reign, and he gives everything a facelift. 
He sort of turns it back to as it was in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the animals, you know, uh, were not carnivorous until after the flood. After the flood, God said, now man can eat meat. And that also turned into animals. But in the millennial reign, the, the lion, it tells us in Isaiah, will graze next to the cow. A child can reach into the viper's hole and play, like, play with it like an earthworm. And uh, there will be no carnivorous animals in that time um, because it's going to be going back as it was before uh, sin entered this world. And there'll be a thousand years of that. After that, there is going to be a melting of all the universe, including the earth. Everything is going to get melted down by a fervent heat. And then God's going to make a new heavens, a new Jerusalem, and a new universe. And that will be a time, as Peter says there, new heavens and earth, which righteousness alone dwells. In Revelation 21, I, you know, it says one way to purify yourself in this world is to think about what it's going to be like to go to heaven. First John 3 says, everybody who thinks on these things will purify himself. So in Revelation 21, it's just purify ourselves here. Plus, there's a blessing reading the book of Revelation. In verse 1 through 5 of Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them in their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, amen, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain. Amen. For the former things have passed away, and then he who sat on the throne, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write these words are true and faithful. So there is going to be a time now he is reconciling all the world to himself who will come and believe. Now understand, it's not, it, it's not that God is reconciling himself to the people but that God is reconciling people to himself. This is important because all religions in the world are focused on man's pursuit of God. You need to get holy. You need to pray. You need to crawl on your knees. You need to chant. You need to cut your hair like this. You need to dress like this. And, 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 and it, the game keeps upping. It's always to be more aesthetically suffering for you. Um, they, you can't drink this. You can't eat that. You can't touch that. You can't be around that. And it's just oppressive. This is religions. All the religions of the world eventually focus on man. And then they will up the bar. So you're never feeling secure. You're always feeling like, I'm not doing enough. Even though you're praying five hours a day. I know, but the real godly man I found out is praying eight. Uh, you know, I'm being holy, but as he pointed out, I'm not being holy enough. It's always that way. All religions of the world, and this is one of the ways that Satan oppresses man and turns off the non-believer to God. 
Because as man is trying to make himself good and better and holy to, for, to be accepted by God, he's not reconciled to God because man cannot reconcile, reconcile himself to God, even though virtually all believer, all religions teach that. This is the whole point of Christianity. This is why Christianity completely is different from all other religions of the world. The whole focus is on him and his love for us, him being the sacrifice to make us pure in his sight. So we discover that God is the one reaching out to us. God is doing the work. As David in, in Romans 5, or chapter 4, verse 5 said, blessed is the man who has been justified not of works, apart from works, been justified by Christ who justifies the ungodly and he counts his faith as righteousness. Blessed is that man who comes to that place to realize it's not of my works. It's all about a God who justifies the ungodly by faith, not of works. That's a blessed man because he understands that he has been made righteous by God. This is the point. We have been reconciled unto God because Jesus bore our sins on the cross that we can come, cross the bridge, cross, cross the gap through the cross to be unto the Father. It is not about mankind being reconciled to God. It's about God reconciling man unto himself. Big difference. And this is the point he's making here, that we are not the one presenting ourselves to God. We're not going to go to the pearly gates. You hear all these stories about going to heaven in front of the pearly gates, and we talk to Peter or Michael the archangel, all of that. Or you're by yourself, and God the Father is going, you know, pulls down and goes, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm sort of you know, you, you better talk good. You better really give me your case. No. When we die, we're going to be awakened with Jesus stroking our face. Wake up, my son. Wake up, my daughter. And we're going to open our eyes. And we will look upon Jesus. And Jesus will bring us to the Father. And he'll say, look, Father, exactly righteous as I am righteous, perfect as I am perfect. That's what's going to happen in Ephesians 5.27, that he might present her to himself. The bride of Christ is the, the church is the bride of Christ, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having what? Spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. It's interesting. He, he makes it clear there's not one stain in our righteousness. Oh, since I became born again, I've done a lot of staining on my righteousness. No, Christ is constantly cleaning us, constantly making us white as snow, like a bride in her wedding white redding dress. Christ is doing that constantly. Not even a wrinkle. 
Not even a wrinkle. Up there, iron us out. <laughs> Every day, he's ironing. Every day, he's making sure that we are without a spot, without a blemish, but we are exactly as Christ, holy and without blemish. And this happens by him. By him this happens, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All material things, all spiritual things have been made peace through the blood of the cross. So we don't make our own peace with God. See, this is what people are doing. Well, I, I sin so much, I'm going to give a bunch of money to feel, ease my conscience. I'm going to, you know, get on my knees and pray all day, you know, whatever day, to, to make up for my sins on the weekend. Because I need to have a peace with God, and I need to be better than I am. And, and we're striving to try to be something that we think God wants us to be. You, you know what God wants you to be? <laughs> honest with him. That's it. David said that after he sinned with Bathsheba in the Psalms. He's like, if you wanted sacrifices, I'd give them, but you don't want them. What do you want? All you want, God, is honesty in the inward most parts. What else does God want? What has he required of you, O oh man, but to do justly? Call sin, sin. Don't, don't say, oh, I didn't commit adultery. I just had an affair. <laughs> don't, don't, don't call drunkenness, you know, just partying. <laughs> Be honest with God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive of our sins. But if we say we have no sin, then there's no truth in us and there's no way we can be right with God. What does God require of man to do justly? To see things as God sees things. To love mercy. You guys like getting mercy? Then be the person who likes giving mercy. And then what? To walk humbly with our God. What does any father want from his child? The father wants the child to want him. <laughs> you know, there's, I remember when I had three little ones, the fourth hadn't born yet, I couldn't even get in the front door. I would come home. They would be at the window, banging on the window. And ah, ah, they all had their arms up. They all wanted me to pick them up. And I'd try to open the door. And Charlotte would have to come and get him out of the way. And I'd open the door. And I'd pick all three of them at the same time. But, you know, the big highlight of the day was just seeing their passion of wanting me. That was enough. And, of course, you'd like to have that as they grow into their teenage years and 20s and 30s. And, uh, and once you have grandkids, you can care less if they want you or not. It's all about the grandkids. But, uh, but Christ has done this. He's already made peace on the cross. It's a done deal. He did it for us through the work of the cross. Now, it's interesting here. He makes it clear. It was the blood that was shed. Now, a lot of people... The natural mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit. They're offended at the idea of bloodiness and torture and a cross and death and a spear going into the side, a crown of thorns upon the head. But we've got to understand that this was the primary reason Jesus, God, 
came into human flesh, 100% God, 100% man, is that he would have blood, that he could be the Lamb of God, that he could be a sacrifice. If Jesus was in the workshop in Nazareth and cut his finger and bled, we're not all saved, (laughs) okay? It's all the point that Jesus was taken to the various authorities in Jerusalem, and what did they say? He's worthy to be, cruci- to be sacrificed, to be crucified. He went to the high priests, and they all ruled, yes, he is to be crucified, sacrificed. The whole multitude said, crucify him, crucify him. Yes, Jesus is worthy <laughs> to be the sacrifice of God, approved by all. So when Jesus was brutalized and tortured and beaten, his beard plucked out, when he went to the cross, his blood was given in a sacrifice for our sins. Follow with me on this in Hebrews 9.22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission. That is taken away of the sin. No blood, no peace. Galatians 5.11 says, And I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? For the offense of the cross has ceased. The, The message of the cross, especially Christ bleeding on the cross, is offensive because it says you're such a horrible sinner that Jesus had to go through such a horrible time as a sacrificial lamb. But boy, Jesus doubles down. He just... He wants to make this clear to you that salvation is, yes, free for you. It is free from any work on your part, but it is not free from work. Jesus worked hard for your salvation. Do you understand that? He he doesn't want you to see it as a common thing. He doesn't want you to see Jesus going, Ah, is it this weekend I'm going to get ah, crucified? Okay, let's get this over with. No big deal. No. It was huge. And he tries to help the people see this in John chapter 6. You know that passage where he, they said, hey, feed us. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to feed you again. I, you know, well, yeah, you, you can't feed us. You're too weak. Now, Moses, he fed us bread <laughs> uh, in the wilderness, manna. And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you squat. (laughs) That was my father gave you the manna from heaven. And your father gives you the true manna. And if you eat of that manna, you will have eternal life. They said, give us that manna. And Jesus says, it's my flesh. Eat my flesh and you'll have eternal life. And then he doubled down and said, also drink my blood in order to have eternal life. Every man that eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have everlasting life. But if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no salvation for you. Now, what happened there? (laughs) Everybody freaked out. And it said the great multitude disbanded. And then he turns to his apostles, said, you guys sticking around? And Peter said, This is hard. This is a difficult, crazy thing you just said. But who else has words of eternal life? 
And then Jesus says this in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.21-24, for since the wisdom of the world, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolish message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he is making it clear. Jesus was in flesh and blood. If he wasn't 100% man with blood soaring through his body, he could not be a sacrifice. If you know the the Jewish culture, when they gave a sacrifice on behalf of all the people once a year, at the high priest would first they would drain that lamb, and then he would go for only one time a year into the Holy of Holies and pour the blood upon the mercy seat. And the Bible teaches that as God as man is pouring blood on the mercy seat on earth in the Holy of Holies that God is receiving that blood to cover their sins for a year. What was the, when Jesus says, it is finished, what happened? The curtain in the temple was split in two, exposing the Holy of Holies. Because no more is there a veil, no more is there a, a curtain keeping us from the very presence of God. When we go to heaven and we see the temple of God there and we see the mercy seat, you know what we're going to see? The blood of Jesus Christ upon that mercy seat. He entered to heaven and there upon the mercy seat placed his blood. Well, in verse 21, and you who once were alienated, enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So understand, it wasn't a tiny reconciliation. You're already a good person. You just need one little tiny step and you're in because you're basically in heaven already because you're such a good person. Almost, I'd say 98% of the time we go out to witness, we ask people, do you know how to get to heaven? And they say, absolutely, be a good person. And I am, that's it. He doesn't expect me to be a perfectly good person, just a sincere good person. And I sincerely try to be the best person I can be and I know God will accept me. They have great faith in that. But from God's point of view, we're not just a sinner with a small s. <laughs> we're a sinner with a big s. We're not wicked with a small w. We are wicked with a giant w. And notice how he describes it. You, put your name there by the Bible. I have it in my Bible. You, Brian, and Brian. Yes, yes, God. You were once in the past, before you believed in the gospel of Christ, you were alienated, estranged, cut off, separated, completely estranged from God. It wasn't a small chasm. It was an impossible wide chasm. There's no way we could ever go to heaven. 
There's no way we could ever be seen good enough in God's eyes. Boy, Ephesians is pretty brutal on this point. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Let's look at this. Verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. In chapter 4, verse 18 of Ephesians, having their understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then he goes on to say, we were enemies in the mind and in the works. I mean, don't most sinful works first happen in the mind. But yet, what happens? A lot of people think outwardly, I'm not that bad of a person, as long as nobody can read my mind. <laughs> if you read my mind, I'm going to probably get locked up in jail. But this is a Sermon on the Mount, right? You say, don't commit adultery. But I say, if it's going on inside, if you're lusting in your heart, inwardly, then God has put it in his book as you did actually do that deed. You say, don't kill anybody. But I say to you, God's looking at your heart. And if you say in your heart, you idiot, you've committed murder. What is he trying to make known? That the chasm is wide. We're not close to it. No matter how religious we are, no matter how good we are in our own mind and thinking, we are estranged from God, yes, in evil deeds, but we're also hostile in our mind. John 3, 19 to 20 talks about this. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The fact is, is you could sit with a group of guys at work and say, hey, let's talk about Eastern religion. Oh, yeah, tell me. I love hearing about that. What, what do you think? Hey, do you guys know about the Muslim religion? Hey, let's talk about that for a while. No, no problem. Well, I want to talk about Jesus. Ah, get out of here. Don't put that down my throat. Quit trying to preach to me. Quit trying to make me. You know, it's amazing. Men truly hate the light. They'll talk about darkness all day. They'll talk about the lies of the devil in any religion in the world all day. There's no offense to that. But the moment you start to turn the light switch on, they scatter like cockroaches <laughs> because they know. Jeremiah 19, or 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our heart is desperately, deceitfully wicked. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like unclean thing and all our righteousness like what? Filthy rags. We are all fade at a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So we were enemies. We were hostile to God in our mind, inwardly, but also outwardly. And yet now he, 
Don't, don't just say, oh, we've been reconciled to God. Don't say that. He reconciled us to God. He will bring us before the Father and tell the Father how much he loves us and all that he's done for us through the cross. In Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. You guys remember that story of Hosea, right? Not go home and read it. It's a great story. But he's a holy man of God or a righteous prophet of God. And God tells him to go marry the most despicable prostitute in town. Worse yet, her name was Gomer. <laughs> hi, hi. Hi, hi, Hosea. Good to see you. No, I don't know. <laughs> but after he married her, she just wanted to go out and be a prostitute again. And he'd have to go find her and bring her home. Now, he, at first, he wanted to do according to the law. The law was if a wife went out and prostituted, she was to be put to death. And Hosea's like, I just want to take her to the authorities and end this thing. But she had a child, most likely not Hosea's. And God said, Hosea, do not divorce her. Do not say one harsh word to her. You go and show her love and keep loving on her until you woo her back into your home. And they had a child and she went out prostituting again and again. And each time God said the same thing. We need to understand that this is God, as he ended that, Hosea is saying, this is me towards Israel. Israel is the, the prostitute. And I'm just going to keep loving her and loving her and, and wooing her back home. That's going to be our relationship. <laughs> and so you see our need. We were sinners. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us while we were still sinners. Well, finishing up here in verse 22. He did this in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. In the body of his death, that's redundant. You could have just said in his body or in his flesh. But he actually makes a redundant statement. You know, if you did that on your computer, it would go red and they're like, fix this. This is grammatically messed up. Um, but no, the, it's being emphatic on purpose, redundant on purpose. Jesus had a body. Jesus had a flesh. And without his flesh, without his body, without his blood, we would not be reconciled. First John, he was again fighting the same Gnostics, much more developed the time John writes about them. But in verse 2 through 3, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has what? Come in the flesh is of God. But every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist who has come, who has heard was coming and is now already in the world. Interesting that one of the number one things, the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, who's always been in the world, but is definitely going to become into human flesh and try to and deceive the whole world, and all the world will follow and worship him. And it's interesting that one of the things he's going to do 
is bring this Gnostic teaching back that Jesus was never in the flesh. So nothing that he did would take or remain or be enough for your salvation. You need him, the Antichrist. You need his doctrine. This is why in 1 John says, they went out from us because they were never really of us. They went out from us to make it evident they were not of us. So these people who came in into the Christian church, but they did not believe Jesus came in the flesh, they really were more swayed by the Gnostic teachings, but yet they also wanted to come to church because they had great worship and the people were full of the Spirit and, and, and they were there for, for months, years maybe, and then finally they shared the truth. They don't believe Jesus was ever in the flesh because all matter is evil. And if Jesus was in the flesh, then he would be evil. So he can't be a sacrifice. Take a little moment, if you would, in Hebrews 10. I want to read a big part of this. Verse 5 through 14. This, is a, this in Hebrews is where all of these second generation Christians are wanting to leave Christ and go back to Judaism and in Judaism be righteous through the law. And, and Paul is saying it can't be done. And in Hebrews 10, 5 through 14, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. You read the last book of Malachi. He, he says, don't bring any more. I, I won't receive it. And in verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It's written of me to do your will, O God previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offerings according to the law. In verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, and he may establish the second. By that we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus was the final Jewish sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled the law. We're going to learn that in Colossians 2. There was one final Jewish sacrifice, no longer a substitute, a lamb, no longer a blood of an animal that could only cover for a year. But Jesus was the final sacrifice in the Jewish system, the lamb of God, and only needed to happen once and no more. Matter of fact, if you did it after that, that was blaspheming Christ. And in verse 11, now every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Again, make note, this man. From that time, waiting till all his enemies would be made under his footstool. For by one offering, he has, notice these two words, guys, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Again in Romans seven fourteen. Therefore, my brethren, you also become dead in the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, and we should bear fruit to God. In Ephesians two fifteen, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, being at war with God, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Hebrews 10.20, by a new and living way, which is consecrated for us through the veil, that is what? His flesh. So the veil that separated the 
temple from the Holy of Holies, that big thick curtain was actually a prophecy, a symbol of the body of Christ that would be sacrificed for us. That's why when Jesus died, that flesh, if you would, that veil, that flesh was ripped and torn. It was really Jesus' flesh that was ripped and torn. And now it's taken down. So no longer just the high priest one time a year goes into the Holy Holies, but all of us all the time now can actually live in the Holy of Holies. And you know what? God actually says he put his Holy of Holies in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this happened through his death. So Christ's physical body and his literal death. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, for, we, for when we were still without strength, we had no ability to even know we were sinners, to really understand. Our conscience bothered us, but we didn't realize that there was no way we could ever be righteous with God and hell was coming. We didn't have that understanding except occasionally when the Holy Spirit grieved our hearts. But out, out of that, we had no strength to live for God. In due time, Christ died for the lovely. Is that what it says? Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved from his life. And not only that, but when we all rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Jesus said when we were at the worst state we will ever be in, we were weak. We had no spiritual ability. When we were sinners, horrible, evil, wicked in our hearts and in our minds and in our deeds. When we were enemies of God. Don't talk about Jesus. Mention Jesus. Don't pray for me. One more time, even as Jesus, I'm going to beat your head in. We were enemies. <laughs> we didn't want to be told we were sinners. We didn't want to hear that we were unrighteous. You didn't want to hear that I'm going to hell because I am separated from God. We were in the worst possible place. Christ still went through and did all of the work in hopes that we would believe. Christ loved us by sending the spirit of the world, convict man of sin and of righteousness of judgment, that we might be drawn by the Father unto Jesus. And all of this has happened. So when we say, God, I'm a sinner, Jesus, come to me, that's the greatest of all miracles. There'll never be a greater miracle on earth than that moment when you believe because you were such a sinner, far worse than anybody with leprosy, far worse than anybody even dead that Jesus raised from the dead. You were spiritually dead, far worse than just being physical dead. We were without God, without hope in this world. Christ still came at the appointed time. He lived the life. He taught us the way. He died on the cross and rose again while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. How much more now, after we have believed that we are going to be reconciled to God? See, this is the whole point. So people go, well, now that I'm struggling with sin, ever since I believed, I don't know, am I still reconciled to God? 
Dude, when you were in the worst possible place you could ever be, Jesus reconciled you to the Father. You believed, and in that instant you believed, you were born again. Your name was written in the book of life. You were accepted forever. You shall not perish. You shall have everlasting life. How much more now, just as you're going through a difficult time, struggling with your flesh, of course you're still reconciled. And then it's through his death to present you as perfect to the Father. We have been predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Having been predestined, we have been called, and to these also who have been called have been justified. Those who are justified, they shall be glorified, our state in heaven. Read 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled faces, beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. So what happened after reconciliation? He's now shaping us by the power of God. That reconciliation includes sanctification. And he is making us till we are glorified, equal to God in glory. I know that sounds horrible. It sounds heresy. But this is what he's doing. He's raising us up to be children of God. In Ephesians 5.27, that he might present her, the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We should be holy and without blemish. So he's presenting us to God and he is doing it. He did it. He will present us, as we read twice now in Ephesians 5.27, and actually have it down a third time. But anyway, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 24, listen, God's going to reconcile us. Jesus is going to present us to the Father. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is what? Faithful, who also will do it. You see, we know that verse in 2 Timothy, right? If we're not faithful, what happens? He remains faithful. So let's understand. God reconciled us through the body and the blood of Christ. And now God keeps that reconciliation always in good standing by his power, by his love through the washing of the water of the word. He has called us to be holy. We need to be working in cooperation with him. But he is the old, ultimate one that is going to present us to the Father. He himself who called us, who also shall do it in spirit, soul, and body. So when we hear God saying, be holy, we should not feel the weight of like, ah, but I'm trying so hard, I'm failing. Christ has ultimately already made us holy. Yes, we also need to work in cooperation. We're going to talk about that next week. But to be holy is to be separated, set apart, like the utensils in the temple the priests would use. All those who would believe are made holy and blameless before him. We should be holy and without blame. This is what he's doing in Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him in love. Not irritation, not being upset. Oh, you've, been, you've been so difficult here, Father. He's holy and righteous. Oh, get him out of here. No, it's out of love, not frustration. The idea of presenting us holy before God, it's like the priest inspecting the potential sacrifice for approval. We have been inspected by God the Father 
We have passed the approval to be a living sacrifice, holy, blameless, without spot and wrinkle. And then he uses the word blameless, which is, can be translated perfect, without blemish. We are without fault. It's usually referred to in character, a blameless character. But Christ has made us without any blemish at all. We have no spot in us whatsoever. And then the last is above reproach in his sight. You know what this understands beyond reproach? It literally means no one can ever bring a charge against us. Romans 8.33, who, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can bring a charge against us? It can't happen. Part of the reconciliation is that we'll never be judged again by God or condemned for our sins. Now, what happens when your, your kids misbehave? Do you throw them away? Get another kid? No, we'll have another one. Forget that last one. No, you discipline them. You spank them. You give them timeouts. You talk to them. You encourage them. Whatever you got to do. But you never think, I'm going to throw them away if they don't add up to the kind of child I want. So now that's how God works with us. There's no more judge and guy who's committed some crime that I need to judge. There's no more condemnation. Christ is no longer our judge. He's now our father, our husband, our friend, our shepherd. Do you understand? There's no condemnation whatsoever. And even Satan's condemnation Satan's condemnation no longer has any power. I love that Re Revelation 12. I heard with a loud voice in heaven. It wasn't a, a quiet voice. It wasn't a whisper. Nobody just said to me that somebody was shouting, thunder happened. Salvation and strength and kingdom of our God, the power of our Christ has come. And the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. They have overcome him. The believers have overcome him. How? Read this, guys. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives unto death. Little children, I write these things to you. Don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is the propitiation. You know what that is? The blood being spilt on the mercy seat. He is the propitiation, his blood upon the mercy seat, not only for your sins, but for the whole sins of the whole world. This is free from all future accusations. In 1 Corinthians 1.8, who, Jesus, who also confirmed you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we looked at this verse positionally. We are going to be holy, without blemish before him. But as we combine verse 21, 22, and 23 together next week, we are also going to look at the practical realities of sanctification, how we need to be given ourselves to sanctification. And if we don't, we are going to be lacking in rewards. And we're going to take a look at this verse and other verses that appear to be conditional. Some people make them conditional concerning salvation. You lose your salvation if you don't, or you never were saved if you, don't, if you don't, or you do. But no, that's not the case. And we'll see these various verses 
uh, in, in its context. But one last encouragement in Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. How? With exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, by be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you, God, for your goodness towards us. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you that all the reconciliation for earth and heaven have already been done through the blood of the cross. And Lord, we come, we who are spiritually discern all things. There had to be one who would bear our sin, be the sacrifice for us, who would, for our sins and for our iniquities and for all our wickedness, that you would pay the price and through your stripes we would be healed. And so, Lord, we never again want to minimize your blood. We never want to minimize the work of Christ. We know there is no other way into salvation except through that one sacrifice of Jesus and the blood he shed upon the cross in our place as our substitute, bearing our sins, and then conquering sin and conquering death in his resurrection. Never again, Lord. We know the Jehovah Witnesses minimize him. The Mormons minimize him. The Muslims minimize him. So many religions minimize Jesus. They can't ignore him because his teachings are too amazing. But they will never see Jesus as the Lamb of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords who came into human flesh and bore all our sins upon himself. We thank you and Lord ask that we would now be ambassadors in the world, reconciling the world unto Christ through the gospel message in Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen.